Good morning to you all, dear friends, or maybe I should say all you Bible explorers out there, because yes, we are exploring as we continue in the series under the theme, Knowing God. Now, we started off a few months ago stating that we'll be doing studies in prophecy, and we did for the first few months, going through about 20 studies or so. Then we started this series entitled, Knowing God. Now, you might be wondering, when are we going to get back to prophecy? Well, we will in due time. But here's what we need to understand, dear friends, that all truth in the Bible is interconnected. There is no aspect of truth that is isolated, having no bearing on any other part. Whether it's prophecy or gospel or historical events or Christian ethics or whatever it is, it's all interconnected. And we will come to see this in due time. It is like a wheel with many spokes in it. And they all meet in one point in the center called the hub. Just for the purpose of this illustration, God is the hub where all truth meets. Hence Jesus said, I am the truth. John 14 and verse 6. And I've come to realize that when we have a clear understanding of the one who is at the center of all truth, then all the other parts fit in their rightful place and they're much easier to grasp. Now this is part six of the series on knowing God. And today's topic is the elements of free choice. It is a kind of continuation from choice and consequences which we looked at last week. A very important topic. Now the first thing we want to consider is why free choice? You know, I've heard people say before, why didn't God just make me so I couldn't sin? So I wouldn't have to worry about the possibility of rejecting salvation and being lost and all that kind of thing. Why not just make me so I couldn't sin? The simple answer is, dear friends, if God made you like that, you would not be human. You would be less than human, in fact. You would even be less than the animals if you were created without the capacity to make choices. Because even at a certain level, even the animals can choose based on memory. You've probably seen National Geographic where, you know, the animals get attacked by some other kind of animal in one and they choose, they go to another place to graze because they remember that this area is dangerous. So at their basic level, they're able to from memory make choices. So just imagine if human beings did not even have the ability to make choices we'd be less than even the lowest classes of animal. Now, part of being human, which makes us distinct from other lower creatures, is the fact that there are certain experiences which we are able to have and certain abilities that we are able to use. For example, the powers of wisdom and intelligence and compassion and empathy, humility, generosity, all these things. You see, without the freedom to choose, we would not be able to experience these. The fact that from time to time you may meet a person who is genuinely living by any of these streets, and yet so many others who are not doing so, it shows that at some level a choice is being made. Otherwise, no one would be able to hold another person accountable for anything they do if they had no say in the matter if it was not involved in the making of a choice. The mere fact that anyone can hold another person 
responsible for anything they do is proof that we believe they didn't have to do what they did, but they chose to do it. So all the abilities that I mentioned before can only be experienced when we have the power to choose. But there is another that is most important, dear listener, and that is love. Over and over in the past, I've made the statement that love is something that you cannot force out of a person. It is something that a person has to choose freely and willingly to do. All the force and the threats in the world cannot make a person love you. The most that you can do is make them pretend that they love you. But deep in their heart, they will resent you, even hate you, and just waiting for an opportunity to get rid of you or escape from you. Just like all the other important human attributes of character, love also can only exist if there is the ability to make free choices. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 6 that God is love. In other words, love is the very foundation of God's nature. Everything else about God flows from that foundation. It's the very definition of God. Now, love is not merely an emotion. There is an emotional compartment to love, yes. But love itself is not just an emotion. Emotions often change with moods. And then people realize that they didn't really love after all. Some have an emotional upsurge and they're convinced that it is love. And so people get into relationships. But it only takes a major disagreement for them to become bitter enemies and start plotting against each other and undermining each other. But true love is constant. Rather than being merely an emotion, love is a principle. It is a principle of action which causes a person to always do what is in the best interest of another or of others. In other words, whether you are feeling kind towards a person or not, you will treat them with kindness, regardless. Whether or not you are in disagreement with another person, you will still treat them with courtesy and respect regardless. So love is not based on feelings. It's based on a principle of consistent action, of consistently doing what is right and best for others, despite feelings. And this can be challenging at times, yes. However, the Spirit of God is provided for us, dear friends, to be able to love like this. There is a very revealing thing about love that we are also told in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. It says, love seeks not after its own. In other words, love does not seek after its own interests. It seeks after what is in the best interest of others. Another way of saying this is, love is not self-centered. Love is other-centered. Thus, God, by his very nature, will go to any extreme in righteousness for the good of human beings whom he has created. Yes, even to the sacrifice of himself, which is what we saw, by the way, on display on the cross of Calvary. And notice that I said he will go to any extremes in righteousness because God will not do an unrighteous act to convince you that he loves you. He functions only in righteousness. 
The Bible says all unrighteousness is sin. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 17. And all sin is against his nature. So he will go to any extreme to save you, but only in righteousness. And if after giving you the freedom of choice, he then refuses to allow you to have what you have chosen, that too would be an unrighteous act. Because it would be a denial of free choice. So in giving human beings the freedom to choose, God must let them have what they choose, even if it is not what he would want them to choose, even if it's not what would be best for them. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, notice the word willing. It is God's will that none perish. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Will all come to repentance? No. The Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction and the majority go that way. And straight and narrow is the way that leads to salvation and few there be that go that way. So the reality is that if it is not God's will for any to be lost, but for all to come to repentance, and yet many will be lost, what does it show us? That free choice is a power that can even overrule God's will for us if we choose to misuse it. The very act of creating human beings was an act of love. And he created us for a very high destiny. We were created to be inducted into God's family by a spiritual process of adoption. He didn't make mankind to sin, but he knew that in creating them, he had to make them free, even to turn away from him. Because the freedom to accept him also has the flip side of the freedom to reject him. God did everything to direct mankind in the right way, and yet because of his foreknowledge, he foresaw that mankind would choose to turn from him and enter upon the path of sin and rebellion. So even before creating this world and creating human beings, God put in place a plan for the redemption and the restoration of mankind because of what he foresaw man would do. We all know that our salvation is based only on the grace of God. But the scriptures make it clear that God's grace by which we are saved was given to us in Christ before the world began. Clearly then, the plan for the salvation of human beings was put in place even before Adam and Eve were created, even before human beings existed. And this was based on the fact that God foresaw that humans would misuse and pervert the freedom given to them and write themselves off, becoming in need of a savior. And the mercy and the greatness of God is seen in the fact that even before humans existed, even before we had a problem, there was a solution already in place. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So at a certain point in time, this mysterious plan rooted and grounded in the mercy and forgiveness of God, finally took shape and form. Born of a woman as we are, 
He started off as we all do, growing up and becoming acquainted with all the challenges and difficulties that we have to deal with. And notice again that it states in verse 5 that he came that we might receive the adoption of sons. So even though by sin we forfeited the right to exist, we rejected the one through whom alone we can have existence, yet God in mercy drew closer to us and said, I will give you another chance. I will activate the plan which I had put in place for you even before the foundation of the world. And so by taking on human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, through him, God says, I will bring you even closer to me. I will adopt you into my divine family. Wow, what a high destiny. The scripture says that we might receive the adoption of sons. Why? Because God is interested in having a relationship with us. So he had to give us freedom so we can experience love. So we can participate in his family, being able to receive his love and experience his love and also channel that love to each other, redirect it to each other and back to him also. In order to relate as members of a family, we must have certain mutual traits of character. You may have a house with a lot of furniture and chairs, tables, refrigerator, beds, brooms, etc. But they're not family. You cannot have a conversation with your broom. And if you find yourself doing so, then you can know for sure that you're having some serious mental problems. You might be happy that you have a couch, but your couch cannot feel compassion for you or love you or forgive you if you spill some juice on it. But God envisioned that out of the rebellion and the sinfulness of mankind, there would be a solution that he put in place in Jesus Christ. And out of that solution, there would be a family which would include the many millions of those who would accept their adoption into his family. And despite even all of this, God knew that many would still choose to reject this great salvation, would still choose to turn away from him and be eternally lost. And he would have to honor their choice, even their choice to reject him. The freedom to choose, dear friends, is one of the greatest powers that have been given to mankind because it gives man the power even to say no to his creator, to say, no, I don't want you. I don't want what you have for me. And even walk away from his creator permanently and be lost. So the freedom of choice is a power which we all have, which we all can use for good or misuse to the point of even rejecting the infinite love of God. Love gives all, even to give freedom, even though it has the potential to bring hurt to the one who loves. And the Bible tells us that God has given to us all things in Christ. The Apostle Paul takes this further in the book of Ephesians, where he says, in Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 3 to 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Think about this. 
it says God has chosen us in Christ, even before the foundation of the world. So before he created us, he had a plan in mind. He had us in mind and a plan for us in mind because he saw what we would do. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it tells us that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ before the world began. That's an amazing mystery. God knew he was going to create mankind. He foresaw what mankind would do and he put a plan in place. A plan that through Jesus Christ, a system of grace would be implemented whereby we have salvation in Christ and be adopted into his family. And so now in Ephesians 1 verse 4, the apostle says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in verse 5 he says, having predestinated us, Unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Amazing. And it's not because of anything in us, but because of his good pleasure, his will. It is according to his will, and it gives him great pleasure to do so. And it's solely by his grace that we have a way of escape through the beloved Son. The next verses say, Ephesians 1 6 on, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, that is, in the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So all that we have is through the shed blood of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. The love of God towards us, dear friends, is amazing. And yet again, it must be said, that when we still insist upon going our own way, he has to let us go. Even though it breaks his heart because of the consequences we are bringing upon ourselves. And that is why over and over in the Old Testament, we see God giving up people to the consequences which flow out of their own choices. After much warning and pleading, even when it breaks his heart to do so. The law of sowing and reaping is set in nature and cannot be otherwise. And thus it must be clearly understood that God does not punish or even need to punish people. People are punished by the consequences which flow out of their own actions. When they separate themselves from God, forcing him to withdraw himself, giving them over to the law of sowing and reaping. In other words, they place themselves where he can do nothing more for them. They have told him to leave them alone. They have said, look, leave us alone. And he pleads for years and years until he finally departs. This is really a gist of what happened at the time of the flood, recorded in Genesis. In the book of Job, we get a glimpse behind the scenes. It says here in Job 22, from verse 15 to 17, it says, Have you marked the old ways which wicked men have trod? In other words, have you taken notice of the path which they took? Verse 16 says, Who were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflown with a flood? So it gives us context. We know we're talking about those who were cut down at the time of the flood, who were washed away at the time of the flood. And then verse 17 says, Who said unto God, Depart from us, 
and what can the Almighty do for them? Why did God have Noah preaching to them to repent for 120 years? 120 years! Because he did not want a flood to come. He was doing everything to prevent it. His mercy and long-suffering were just extended. But they were choosing, and finally he had to leave them alone. Finally, they had fixed themselves in their choice, and he had to leave them alone. And then all came crashing down. Notice that by their way that they had chosen, they were saying to God, as we just read in verse 17, they were saying, depart from us. In other words, leave us alone. We don't want you. Were they saying it in such words? No. But by their persistent rebellion and, and mocking the prophets and going further and further and deeper and deeper into iniquity and impenitence. And then the question follows, and what can the Almighty do for them? What does that imply? It means that by their stubborn rebellion, they had placed themselves where not even God could do anything more for them. So here's the thing. Elements of free choice. Understand, dear friends, that there are certain basic elements of choice which must be mentioned. Number one, choice involves consequences. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a person sows, that shall he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh shall, from the flesh, reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Our destiny depends on our sowing. And when we talk about sowing here, we're not talking about what a lot of people call sowing a seed and giving money to a church or whatever. No, we're talking about by our action, by our behavior, we are sowing a destiny that each person will have to reap what they've sown. So choice involves consequences. Now, number two, Choice involves responsibility and accountability. In other words, whenever a person uses their will in choosing a particular course of action, they become responsible for the results. They are held accountable. It would be an act of moral injustice to hold one person responsible for the negative results of the choices of another person. Whoever makes the choice becomes responsible or accountable for the results that come from those choices. So choice determines responsibility and accountability. So when we choose to turn from God, we are responsible for whatever results, not God. Number three, the person who gives the freedom to choose has bound himself to respect the choice made, even if it goes totally against what they would want. In the very act of giving the freedom, you bind yourself to honor whatever the choice is. A little example will help to illustrate this. Say, for example, I have a dozen shirts. Say it's my birthday and everybody decides to give me a shirt. I have a dozen shirts, brand new. And a friend comes over to my house and I said, look, look inside my closet. I got a bunch of new shirts. I give you total freedom. I give you freedom to choose anyone you want. And supposing my friend chooses one that is my favorite, and I say, no, 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 you can't have this one, any other one, any other one but this one. Think about this. Did I really give them the freedom to choose? No, I didn't. If I did give the freedom to choose, then I would have to honor their choice 
regardless of even if it's my favorite one they took. Because in giving free choice, I had bound myself to allow them to have whichever one they chose. And likewise, in giving us free moral choice, God has bound himself to allow people to have what they have chosen. He will do everything possible in righteousness to deter them from their wrong choice. But when they stubbornly insist beyond a certain point, he has to leave them to their choice. Number four, the consequences or punishment that results from making a bad choice cannot ever come from the person who gave the freedom to choose. Let me repeat this. The hurtful, harmful, or destructive consequences that result from making bad choices cannot come from the one who gave the freedom to choose in the first place. Maybe some other source, but cannot be from the giver of free choice. Otherwise, free choice was never given. And with just a little bit of thought, it should become clear why this is so. If God gave humans free choice and then he himself punishes them for using this choice, for exercising this choice, it means he never really gave free choice in the first place. For choice to be freely given, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences for wrong choices. There will be, yes, but the consequences of wrong choices cannot ever come from the same source that gave the freedom to choose. Because this would nullify the whole idea of freedom of choice. And since the Bible makes it very clear that all men have the ability to choose their destiny, and since the Bible also makes it very clear that there are consequences for disobedience, and some will be lost, then it should be clear that the punishment does not and cannot come from the very same source from which the freedom to choose came. Cannot come from God. The penalty for sin has to come from a source other than the one who gave the freedom to choose. Otherwise, it's not free choice. And I know some might have a problem seeing this, but just keep rolling it around in your head and one day it's just going to go off like a light bulb. And you're going to say, wow, now I see it. It is so clear to me now. Bear with me, I'm wrapping up. So logically speaking then, dear listeners, in order for free moral choice to exist, then it is impossible for the penalty which results from sin or from making a wrong choice to come from the same person who gave the freedom in the first place. So yes, severe consequences do result from rejecting God's way. But these consequences do not and cannot come from God. God is not a destroyer, dear friends. God is a healer. God is a restorer. God is a savior. But our choices can bring destruction. Another time we'll see this even more clearly. When the people of Israel turned away from God to follow the ways of the heathens, just as with any other peoples, he had to turn away from them, and they suffered at the hands of their enemies. And yet the scriptures say in Isaiah 63 and verse 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Notice, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. So even when we bring hurt upon ourselves, the very heart of God is pained because of the pain we bring upon ourselves. 
by our harmful choices. Dear friends, having given us the freedom of choice, God has bound himself to honor our choice, even when it breaks his own heart. In all our afflictions, he himself is afflicted. But many do not understand this. And so they believe that God is punishing when in actuality it is sin that brings pain, when God no longer prevents it or holds it back. He says unto you and to me today, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace of mind, in other words. So may you put your trust in the loving, all-merciful Heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you more than any earthly parent can possibly care for their own child. Love you all. Have a blessed week. Mm-hmm.